This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. As regular listeners to the show already know, I have a somewhat complicated relationship with New York City. I love the intensity, the convenience, and the overall coolness of the city. On the other hand, sometimes I crave escape to a quieter, mellower place, or maybe just someplace different. But where to go? Let's query some New Yorkers on that. Probably Greece on a beach with a Grecian man. A couple of times I went to Woodstock, which was kind of really nice. They have a a Buddhist uh, temple up there and a really nice uh, hiking trail, which I uh, used to do. Uh, Either Jamaica or Kathmandu. Kathmandu, Mount Everest. What else is there to do? That's probably one of the focal points in the universe. And Jamaica's just a cool place to go just to chill. Fiji, New Zealand, Norway, Provence, Caribbean. I would go nowhere. I would just, I love New York. I would just sit in the middle of Central Park and just sit there and take in the city and find peace and calm wherever I am. And this is where I want to be. Well, fair enough. But for many of us who live in New York, escape from the city and its attendant pressures and annoyances is a frequent fantasy. Later today on the show, we'll talk about one woman's escapes to New York. But first, in her novel, The Way Life Should Be, Christina Baker-Klein tells the story of Angela Russo, a 33-year-old New York event planner who does what a lot of us have fantasized about doing in our darker moments, chucking it all and moving to the country, specifically a remote island in Maine. That novel's out in paperback this month, and Christina Baker-Klein joins me this week in the studio to talk about escaping from New York, why it's such a compelling fantasy, and what happens to Angela Russo when she makes her escape. Christina Baker-Klein, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me about Angela Russo. So Angela Russo is an event planner, as you said, who lives in Manhattan, grew up in New Jersey, and has never ventured far from the metropolitan area. She grew up loving to cook, and yet she keeps sweaters in her oven. She lives in a little tiny space and uh, doesn't live the kind of life that she had dreamed she might live one day. And she has this grandmother who has been sort of a, a mentor and a guide to her. So she has always dreamed of a different life, but instead she's living this New York life that has a lot of good qualities. But um, all in all, in the end for her, uh, it doesn't have the things that maybe sustain her or that she dreams about being sustained by. So she, uh, (laughs) through a series of mishaps, let's just say, she ends up without a job and without anywhere to go or anything to do. And um, she's clung to this idea in her mind that Maine is a different kind of place, even though she's never been there. And she meets a guy online and ends up chucking it all and going up to Maine. Yeah, Tell me how she does come to leave New York. Okay. So she is an event planner. She's in charge of a big event at a museum. And she hires a fire eater who gets into a feud um, or has an ongoing feud, and it all comes to a head at this event, and she has neglected to take out supplementary fire insurance, which sounds like something you wouldn't forget. But my husband works uh, for a media company, and event planning used to report to him, so I got a chance to hang out with a bunch of event planners, and I asked them what what they have nightmares about, what could not only end 
get you fired, but end your career in event planning. And this is one of those things that happened to one of them, that she forgot to take out fire insurance, extra fire insurance, because you always have the normal fire insurance, apparently. I did do research. What what happened for her is that everything went fine. But for my character, the, the terrible thing happens and something catches fire and some paintings are ruined and it ends up ruining her career because it's a huge deal and it's on the front page of the post and she's sort of run out of town on a rail. <laughs> And at the same time, she's sort of met this this main catch guy. Yeah, she so she's flirted online as uh, again lots of fun research on that one um, with a number of different possibilities, and she starts clicking north. She starts in Manhattan in her search and ends up finding this guy who seems possibly too good to be true, a sailor who lives on the coast of Maine, who runs his own sailing school and is incredibly handsome. And she ends up having a torrid weekend with him in Boston. And after that, she's smitten and decides that he's the answer. And I like the way that it works in this book because it's not really spectacular, but it turns out that the guy's not really that exciting. He's kind of tacky. His house isn't this weathered cottage. It's like in a development and all that stuff. And there's lots of little yuck moments. Why did you decide to go that way? I feel, I think that so much of life is like that, that we develop these dreams. We have these dreams about the way things, as I, as the title, my title is sort of ironic, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, but uh, it is ironic, I should say. Um, the way things should be, and what we're looking for, uh, and what we believe we're going to find somewhere else, and we sort of think we're going to shed the things about ourselves that we don't like in the process, and what my character finds is that she goes to this island that, and, and I said it in the winter, because I wanted it not to be the sort of typical Maine summer scene uh, of, as I say in the book, of lobsters and blueberries. I wanted it to be a much grittier, the grittier reality of, of what it's like to be on an island in Maine in the winter. And she gets up there and every single aspect of her dream is, is compromised in some way. And I just wanted to show the way that can happen without it, as you say, and it's true, without it being a spectacular fallout, but instead um, just the, the the details add up to... to um, a kind of crossroads for her that she could either pack it all in and go back and figure out what to do at home, go back to New Jersey to her little floral bedroom that's been turned into her stepmother's closet, or she could stay there and figure out a way to move forward with nothing. And, you know, I was thinking recently about uh, the movie Psycho, how um, you follow the central character and then she's suddenly she's dead within about 20 minutes and there's it doesn't seem like there's any way to move forward that there's nothing to do there's not nowhere to go and i did a bit of that with this character of angela because she gets to maine and everything she went for is gone and you really have there's nothing to cling to she doesn't have money she doesn't have a job she doesn't have any reason for being there she has no friends there so i wanted to put her in a situation that was completely foreign and f- let her figure out then how to move forward on her own. So what does she do? Uh, She scrabbles around. She decides that she doesn't want to go back. Um, And that even though the sky and this life are very different than she thought, imagined, hoped, planned, she wants to figure out if there's a way for her to stay. Because I think what she realizes is that it's an opportunity, she's 33 years old, for her to actually live with herself in a way that she's never done. 
And so she uh, walks into a coffee shop, one of the only places that's open year-round, and she gets some work and begins to serve coffee and then make muffins. And, and slowly the things that she actually is good at and enjoys start to start to come uh, up again for her. She starts cooking again, and she starts reading and spending time alone and figuring out how to be with herself. And she does get sort of part of her sort of cliche main dream because she gets the she gets the Labrador retriever and she sort of lives in this even though it's a kind of a cruddy cottage it's a cottage yeah she and lives people in a shack. keep coming and saying hey it's a nice cottage right well she lives in a shack uh, that isn't all that nice but she uh, she sort of takes it on and f- figures out how to you know go to discount stores and thrift stores and put stuff in it that works again a whole different way of living and it's it's not on the you know it's not this picturesque cottage of her dreams on the water it's down a dirt road and off you know in in the woods but I think part of it is is changing her own perception of what her dreams are changing what her expectations and wishes are too and the way she wants to live she realizes that she doesn't need the beautiful cottage with a trellis you know and all of that that she what she's really looking for is a a stove that works and a big pot that she can cook in and she gets a dog from the pound who's um, codependent and miserable and starts feeding him and you know I think that that journey is one that um, that we as we grow up, probably, I would say it's true for me. I have a very different path than this character, Angela, but we all take in one way or another, figuring out what what the sort of perceived per, what perceived success is and what our own version of that is. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We are talking this week on the show with author and Fordham writer-in-residence Christina Baker-Klein about her novel, The Way Life Should Be. That novel's out in paperback on May 13th from Harper. A little later, we'll hear about one woman's trips to New York and what those have meant to her. But first, let's get back to my conversation with Christina Baker-Klein. I think one of the things that appealed to me about this book is that it sort of picks up on the sort of New Yorker's desperate fantasy of just wanting some peace and quiet. You know, no matter how you have to live, no matter what you have to do, just having a little time for yourself. Is that what you were thinking about? Yeah. You know, I wrote this book, as I was telling you before we we went um, on the air. I have three children um, who are at a very loud age. (laughs) They're three boys, and they're all at home, and uh, my own life is not very quiet. And I wrote these scenes about this character having long stretches of time by herself. And so I think for myself, as I look back, it was a wish fulfillment. uh, How... What does it what is it like to have those big stretches of time and what would you do with them if you had them? So in my own as I say, I'm I'm finding myself in a very full life at the moment, but I know that that's something that I I yearn for too. Now talking about uh wish fulfillment, this book has been placed in the category of chiclet, but it's also been said that it talks about more than chiclet. Chiclet is basically usually about wish fulfillment. How do you feel about about that label? Well, I didn't write it with any uh, label in mind. I will say, and you know, and my other novels have never been accused of that, and my next novel is very dark and intense and involves an accident and two marriages that end and sort of has nothing to do with this. I will say that I set out to write this novel 
with the intention that uh, of doing something different than I'd done before. I wanted it to be I wanted it to be slightly stylized. Um, I wanted it to be uh, a, a comedy in some ways. So the writing is a bit faster than my usual writing. My uh, the the vocabulary is slightly different. There's a lot of dialogue. It moves quickly as a read, and so I I think that that's what they're talking about. There's a female protagonist. Uh, she does internet online dating. You know there are these things that apparently are part of that kind of genre. And I followed some conventions of, I suppose, a romantic comedy, although she doesn't end up with anyone. I don't even know if I should say that, but whatever. Um, I, I, so I, I do understand how that developed. At the same time, I don't know. You know, you write what you write. I, I, this is my third, and as I said, I have a fourth novel coming out next year. And I'm, I, I see myself, if I were to write a thesis about my own uh, themes, I can see what they are at the same time that my books are very different from each other. Um, I tend to use female protagonists, although I have two male voices in the new novel that's coming out next year. So I think I'm just working through the themes of my own life and childhood and whatever else. And this one, as I said, is is its own thing. I didn't set out to write Chiclet. I don't really think it is, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Now, let's get back to Angela. Why did you make her an event planner? I thought that was an interesting career choice. I love the whole field of event planning because you work so hard. There are so many things to keep in your head at one time. Uh, and then it all it all culminates in this one moment and then it's over. Um, and so you've done all this work and it it ends up in this one thing and that's it. I love that idea of, of having to be so organized and on top of everything and you know, in talking to these event planners, they said a number of things that ended up in the book, one of which is that hundreds of things go wrong at every event. And the secret is, the trick is, to make sure that nobody really notices. Of course, you know them all, but most people don't. You're never going to have an event where nothing goes wrong. It's how you handle it when they do. So it's sort of a theme for the book at large. Nothing really goes like you plan, but you have to handle it in stride. That's right, exactly. And also about the impossibility of keeping everything on your list, Go, you know, sort of checking everything off your list and of getting it all exactly the way it should be. That life is messy. Events are messy. You, you have to deal with the unexpected. So Angela has a problem at work, and she is going to lose her job, and she leaves the city, and she drives to Maine in a very old car. What does she find there? When she gets to Maine, she finds, as I said, that what she had expected, the sort of beautiful, picturesque stuff, isn't exactly what she had imagined. You know, Maine is beautiful. I, I grew up in Maine, and this island that Angela goes to uh, is where my parents live, and I have a sister who lives there also year-round, and I go up um, with my children as much as possible and my husband and go up in the summers. So I've seen it at all seasons, and it's beautiful, actually, all, all year-round. But it's also very desolate, and in the winter it can be lonely, as i you know, I've talked about, but what what I also have seen because I've I've been there a lot when other when the tourists are gone, uh, it swells from about between five and ten thousand year round to over a million in the summer. So it's a big change. But the people who live there year round have a very um, strong sense of themselves as sort of homesteaders, and there's also a real there are real communities of these year round people who are sort of the hardy 
pioneers who live there and make life work for themselves year-round. And a lot of them come from away. On an island like this, um, I, I wrote another novel about Maine that takes place in Bangor. And Bangor is a sort of working-class town that's changing like many towns right now. It's becoming sort of fancier. But when I was growing up and lived in Bangor, it's it's a town where people are Mainers for generations, and they they don't leave. They raise their children there, and their children raise children there. The island is very different. It is about a lot of people coming from the outside. And so I wanted to show that community that's made up of people who've come from other places in search of some kind of dream, some kind of life that's different from the one that they had before. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that people were from away yeah. on the island. Yeah, and, you know, I think... Um, I, I, I think that for people in Maine, I've had a lovely response to the book, but I think that some people wonder why I didn't write about native Mainers so much. Uh, there are a few in the book. But again, I wanted to show what it's like to be a transplant and what for, for this community of transplants. And my parents uh, are Southern, and they moved to Maine in 1970, but they've never been considered Mainers because they are from away. And even though they've lived there now for you know, over 30 years, almost 40 years. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a look at one of my favorite places, the American Diner. My guest on Fordham Conversations today is Christina Baker-Klein, and we are talking about her novel, The Way Life Should Be. It's out in paperback this month from Harper. In that book, Baker Klein tells the story of one woman's decision to leave New York and the life she makes for herself in Maine. In a few minutes, we'll hear about one woman's trips to New York. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Christina Baker Klein. So one thing that you talk about a real lot in this book is uh, food and cooking. And um, that's sort of all based around the character of Nana, who you mentioned, who's her grandmother from Italy. Tell me about that character and about her effect on Angela. Nana is a character that I developed. Um, i as I said earlier, if I were to write a thesis about my own themes, one of them would be that I write a lot about grandmothers. I have I have very strong grandmothers, both of whom now are, are dead, but they had a big influence on me. Both of them cooked, and they were both Southern. So when I moved to New Jersey from New York City, my husband and I had two boys at that point and ended up in Montclair. It took a while for me to realize or to sort of understand how prevalent Italian culture is in northern New Jersey, despite the fact that we watched The Sopranos and all of that, but uh, really seeing it. And I've done a lot of different kinds of cooking. I grew up cooking in my family, and I've always loved it. But, and I've cooked Italian food. I myself am not Italian. But I got to northern New Jersey, and I, I started going to this restaurant that had been written up in the Times, and the owners and the chef is this young guy who is half Italian, half Irish, like my character. And he learned to cook at his grandmother's knee, his Italian grandmother's knee. And his influencers are French and Italian and um, and some even English-Irish. And um, he just had a, a flair that I loved. And so I started to shadow him in the kitchen. And I followed him around. I, I copied down his recipes. A number of them appear in the book. He had never written them down before. He just cooks instinctively. And so I wanted to show my character, Angela, is based on him in some ways. She cooks the way he cooks. Tell me more about him. 
he's just a terrific guy. The restaurant is called American Bistro. His name is Kenny Mahan. And uh, it's in Nutley, New Jersey, which is where Martha Stewart is from and also where my character grows up. And Nutley is a town three, two or three over from Montclair, which I, again, had not I, I would say it was five years of after living there that we ventured out to Nutley, really. But it's a town where there are a lot of there were and are a lot of immigrants, Italian and Irish and Portuguese, and um, and so Italian culture is very pervasive there. And I began reading a lot of books about Northern New Jersey. My friend Laura Shannon writes food books about New Jersey and about her memoir books about her family and life as a as a cook, a chef, a, a New Jerseyite, and an Italian woman. I was also influenced by Luis de Salvo's work, um, a book called Crazy in the Kitchen, which again was about growing up um, in New Jersey with um, an, in an Italian family. So I did a lot of research like that. I talked to a lot of people. As I said, moving to Montclair, I've met a lot of people who are um, who have Italian and Italian-Irish backgrounds, which are very common in my area. And the f- I started going to lots of markets and there's a place called Corrado's that is all an Italian a giant Italian market that's always packed and the food is really cheap and it has fresh produce you never know what's going to be there so I I did research that way which was fascinating and fun and I when I began to develop these recipes I adapted them and then had lots of people try them to make sure that they worked and see how they worked so that was a very fun part of the book. I have recipes in the book, which, again, is nothing that I've ever done before. Yeah, no, and they seem really appealing for the most part. <laughs> They're fun. Now, I found the uh, escape theme of this very compelling, as we've talked about. I assume I'm not alone in that. Is that something you've gotten a lot of comment about? So many comments um, about that. And, you know, the Internet has changed everything in terms of writers, authors having access to or I suppose readers having access to writers because I get a lot of emails uh, and I got a lot when the book came out and I still I still get them. But a lot of them are people telling their own stories of either wanting to escape from where they are or um, having done so and what they found. I've gotten probably 10 or 15 from women saying that this is their story. This exact story is theirs, that they met someone online and moved to a small place far from where they lived, from the city to the you know country or to the seaside. And it, so that's been really interesting to see. I also have had two couples who said that they took the plunge and bought real estate in Maine because after reading this book, I guess the woman must have spearheaded it, but... It's kind of fun to hear. Yeah, that's really sweet. Um, now, what what kinds of stories did uh, did people tell you? Well, as I said, the stories about people meeting online and then ending up somewhere else, but different kinds of stories as well. One woman told talked about how she lived in the Midwest. She and her husband, and um, they'd had sort of a middle class life, but they scrimped and saved to build their dream house. And it took them five years to build. She planned every aspect of it. She was obsessed with it. They picked out the wood and, you know, worked with the contractors. And it was a big process. And right before it was done, she and her husband were part of a group that sailed, took a, she had never even been to New York, who sailed from New York up to Southwest Harbor, Maine, which is where really the town that my book is, although I call it something else. And she got there, they stepped off the boat, and she realized that she wanted to live there. And she went home. The dream house had just been finished. And her friends were aghast and flabbergasted that she had 
that they were doing this. They were going to move to Maine. They were going to retire to Maine. And her best friend said, why are you doing this? You've just finished your dream house. And she said, my dreams changed. And I thought that was really interesting, that it was, it was a sort of sudden thing for her in that way. And she's there in the cottage on the coast of Maine. Oh. So Mount Desert Island is a real place or not a real place? Mount Desert Island is a very real place. Oh, okay. I, um, I changed... Uh, a lot of the details are accurate to the real place and use the real names. The name of the town I changed, the actual town that my character lives in, because I wanted to be able to use aspects of different places, and I didn't want the residents to feel like I was following the, them down one street and up another. You mentioned earlier the title, uh, The Way Life Should Be. Tell me about that. So The Way Life Should Be, You May Not Know or You May Know, is the Maine State slogan. And I've always thought it was a really curious slogan because if you live in Maine, of course, <laughs> it's just the way life is. But there are several ways to interpret it. One is that a friend of mine who's also from Maine said he thinks it's Mainers is sort of arrogantly saying, you know, this is how people should live. The rest of you really don't know what it's like. But there's another interpretation, which is that it's Maine is sort of... Um, Instead of having a slogan that's about the people who live there, it's aimed at tourists, like the way life should be, you know, not the way anyone lives, but the way life should be this, in other words, a fantasy of a life that they're promoting to the outside world instead of live free or die, which is very clearly about New Hampshire and its residents. So um, I just thought I've always thought it was a really curious slogan, the way life should be. And, you know, telling people the way this is your fantasy of Maine is the way life should be. And of course, my book is all about how that fantasy doesn't exist in real life and that each person has to find the way she, my character, Angela, has to find the way her own life is and her path. Um, I'll ask you one more question and I'll close with this. When you think about escaping your life, what do you think about? Where do you think about going? I sort of have that escape because I get to go to Maine in the summer. I do love to travel to other places, but I think when you've lived in Maine, if you've ever lived in Maine, there's a part of you that stays there. You drive over that bridge, which I describe in the book. It's a green bridge spanning uh, from New Hampshire to Maine. And it, you feel that you're entering a different place, a different country. And being there, the air feels different. It's much, as you know, it's much less populated. It has a, a whole different feeling. And even if I'm doing the same work, because I write, so I do the work I do wherever I go, I, it's an entirely different experience. So I, I would say Maine. <laughs> well, Christina Baker-Klein is writer-in-residence at Fordham, and she is the author of several novels and a recent recipient of a Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation Fellowship. The Way Life Should Be is out in paperback on May 13th from Harper. Christina Baker-Klein, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We've been talking a lot today on the show about getting out of New York. But what about coming to New York? The city's one of the most popular and arguably one of the most magical places to visit in the world. And as such, it holds an important and cherished place in many of our memories. We'll close the show today with a few of those memories. As part of his longtime project collecting the stories of elderly Americans, it's called Duplex Planet, and you can find it on the web at duplexplanet.org. David Greenberger spoke to Daphne Matthews about her visits to the city. He tells this story based on their conversations.
I like New York. I've been there nine times. It's fascinating. It is. I think it's great. I went to the UN every time I went, except for the last time. I like Yonkers. That's where my sister-in-law lives. But if they're going to sell Tylenol there, I'm not going. That's where that woman lived who died from the Tylenol. But I really do like New York. We stayed at the Times Square Hotel, and we stayed at the Plymouth Hotel, and we went to Radio City Music Hall. A hundred dancing girls all doing the same thing. That's really something. And what legs. And they got pretty faces, too. And those geezers are terrific. And in the same place, I saw a movie of Cary Grant. Some bad guys were chasing him all over the president's faces on Mount Rushmore. I like Cary. He's nice. We went to the Statue of Liberty and went up the Empire State Building. And we walked past Madison Square Garden and I touched the door. Somebody said, isn't that Madison Square Garden? And my minister said, why, yes, it is. And I said, oh, wow, I want to go in. And he said, well, there's nothing going on in there now. And I said, well, I want to at least touch the door. I don't think they'll mind that. And I went over and I laid my own hand right on the door. in that piece from Bird Songs of the Mesozoic. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have comments or questions about today's show, or if you'd like to tell your own story about escape from or to New York, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we'd love to hear from you. Producing the show this week with help from Liz Brockland, I am Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.